Hello, and welcome to the Extension Experience podcast with your hosts, Josh Bouchong, Trent Malachik, and Dana Zook. Here you'll find insights into Oklahoma agriculture from West Area Specialists employed by Oklahoma State University Extension. Their perspectives come from assisting county educators and producers in the areas of agronomy, animal science, and economics. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to the Extension Experience Podcast. My name is Trent Malachik. I'm Dana Zook. And Josh Bashan. Today we have a guest joining us, Brian Frecking, the Southeast Area Livestock Specialist. Thanks for joining us today. We're really ha- glad to have you here, and uh, I hope you can provide some insight into how we control these little critters. So horn flies are just a big problem in Oklahoma. I think Justin Talley, our uh, extension entomologist, told us on a, a meeting a couple weeks ago that Oklahoma has a perfect conditions for horn flies. So Nebraska, Texas, Georgia, all that data was looked at, and none of those states have as big of a horn horn fly problem as we do in Oklahoma. So it must be perfect conditions, Brian. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing the, uh, some of the fly counts since 2010 and, uh, Justin is the, is the reason we've been doing those. Uh, he's a great, great, uh, researcher. And, and I think, uh, 2011 and 2012, when it was a drought year, those were maybe some of our only down years. It's, uh, that moisture and the heat and it's just, uh, thrives here in Oklahoma. So it's, it's ideal conditions, like he said. Absolutely. So let's just dial it back and let's tell our listeners, what is a horn fly? Cause we have lots of flies that impact our cattle herd. What makes that what is specific to that horn fly? What do we see with that? Yeah, so so Dana, you're just like me. We've we've been involved in studies where we're trying to count horn flies on an animal, and so we take a picture of the animal's side, and and we we take that back to our office and look on the computer, like on a almost like a PowerPoint, if you will, and 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 typically uh, they're pretty small flies but they they're they're usually always pointing down if -hmm. you will and they're always taking a blood meal every day and they basically stay on that animal through its lifetime uh maybe only to go from from the animal to a a fresh manure pat to lay eggs that's really the the only two options that thing has to 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 live on so Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a, I always think, you know, when we're looking at those pictures and we'll talk about that here in a minute, all those horn flies are, you know, will be, their head will be facing down on the animal's back. Okay. And so we see, uh, horn flies, um, on the back and shoulder region of the cow. If we're seeing flies on the face, those are obviously face flies, not as, uh, detrimental, although they do transfer pink eye and that sort of thing, but not as, um, uh, irritating of a bite. Is that right, Brian? Yeah, exactly. And, and and it's kind of funny. It's almost like a misnomer. You think a horn flies, like they need to be around the horns, right? Yeah. Well, no, it's, <laughs> it's, so they're, they're biting around the belly, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that cow's using its tail to, to try and knock them off its sides, uh, because that's where it's being irritated. And, and that's, that's the thing. It's just an irritation, you know, it's, it's driving up respiration rates and, and, uh, in the summertime, the body temperature goes up, uh, Dr. Talley's uh, had studies where he's he's seen that uh, you know ones that have been treated and ones that haven't uh, the the temperature body temperature goes up in those animals so it's and yeah so that's a stressor 
So anything like they take blood meals, they're biting. Um, so it, it leaves bite marks in some situations. Um, and there can be a lot of blood loss if you have a significant population. And so, yeah, we see basically decreased productivity of animals because of the stress. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm kind of curious on your guys' end on the Western part of the state are horse flies is big an issue. You know, you talked about leaving that blood mark and, mm -hmm. and usually for us, man, when we see, see a big blood mark in an animal, man, it's usually caused by them dang horse flies and, and uh, they're, they're becoming an even uh, bigger nuisance, even though there's not as many on the animal uh, than horn flies, you know, we get, you know, start out, we treat at 200 flies per side kind of, and uh, I've seen uh, counts upwards of a thousand on an animal that's not been mm -hmm. controlled in any way. So, mm -hmm. so when you're looking at those numbers, what kind of time of day are you trying to get a judge for how many per animal? Yeah. So Josh, in, in that first year when I was learning from Dr. Talley, you know, I'm not sure we always knew when to go out. I was lucky enough to, to say, man, I'm going to, I'm going to, recruit four producers in in the area and we went out and tried to do it early in the morning so i could get get those taken care of and then go to the office and so uh you know i realized real quick in the middle of the day the flies have gone to the belly and you can't get a picture of them so uh, they're still always on them uh, typically those cows may go to the pond for example to try and get some relief and, and so that's sometimes an issue too with uh uh, an animal spending way too much time in the pond, they develop foot rot, you know, soft, soft foot. And, and so, man, the horn flies are, are an issue mm -hmm. <laughs> that we've got to try and deal with. Yeah, they instigate a lot of things. So um, we have a lot of producers that have issues with this. So like you're discussing what you're talking about is some of these demonstrations that we've done, Brian, throughout the state. So I've done uh, about three of them in alfalfa county and uh, testing kind of the horn fly controls in that area and you've been doing them for 10 well, years yeah. down well, started, in the southeast i started in 2010 and, and have continued ever since with with one particular herd off that initial study and mm -hmm. and I, I was interested in the genetic makeup of that herd and, mm -hmm. and I, I know that the uh the breed background you know the percentages of of each breed in them and to see if there's some breed differences and so mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I, when I first moved to Oklahoma, I got exposed to the curse center and, uh, they had walked through fly traps. Uh, Dana, have you ever seen any of those? I haven't. That would be interesting. So, so Trent and Josh, uh, basically, uh, it's, it's a, it's a cage that's got, uh, window screen material that the flies can uh, uh, get knocked off the animal and they always want to go towards light and so they go into the screen material and and basically they can't find their way out of that and so they just die of dehydration so uh, the, the key is you know you got to have an animal go through that darn thing and so there's got to be a reason for it in in in, a, in the curse centers uh, scenario that it was a, a centralized water source so they always had to come to water to get you know get their drink for the day and so they'd kind of have to go through the fly trap and so it's it's a training it's a training method but yeah huh so it's a different way to collect data so that's another thing so what we did in these trials is we were trying to quantify the amount of flies that impacted um, these cattle and so what we do identify producers apply treatments you know fly tag treatments or pour on treatments and that sort of thing there's a variety of things that we've done and then, um, then determine, you know, determine a proper, you know, herds throughout the county or herds in the area. Um, and then 
uh, once a month or once every two weeks, take pictures, side profile pictures of um, a majority of the cattle in that herd. And they don't have to be the same ones every time, but, um, and then count the flies from the pictures that we've taken. And so and by doing that, we can see. And so what you were referring to earlier, we have to take pictures, uh, before the cattle, um, before the cattle, like head to the pond to get away from the flies before the sun is overhead and the flies go underneath the body and that sort of thing. So, um, it's, it's kind of a cool, uh, pro program. But you have to be up at four o'clock in the morning or earlier to get there, at least from my perspective. So, <laughs> so that that those types of treatment or those types of programs is, are what we're doing to kind of help identify what works, what could work for producers to help control this real big issue. Because I think you and I talked about it, Brian. We see, we see, it's hard to quantify it, but we see about a billion dollar loss to the US beef cattle industry because of horn flies, just horn flies. Yeah, it's, it's the biggest, uh, you know, external pairs, you know, parasite, if you will, if, if I'm, I think that's what Justin calls them as well. But, uh, you know, if, if you're going to treat any flies on any of our cattle, you want to probably uh, specifically work after those horn flies. And, and, you know, that original study in 2010, we were looking at four different products. So four different chemistries, we actually don't have a fourth chemistry right now. I know they keep working on a fourth one, but uh, back then, uh, uh, Avenger was one of the tags that uh, is not currently on the market anymore. And so we had that in one of the one of the groups. And so we were looking at the different tags. You know, the permethrins have been around for a long time. They weren't quite as effective. The XP820 hit, you know, in that year was kind of brand new and it worked great. Anything brand new usually works good for that first year. But uh, mm -hmm. after that, we're, we're, we're trying to learn from resistance and, and, uh, and, and figure out rotations. So the, the key to fly tags is to, to rotate chemistries and then remove. Uh, we always want to make sure we remove them after the end of the season or when they're, they're not very effective anymore. Mm-hmm remove and dispose you don't want to just leave them all in the lot right that's 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 exactly right you know we, we hate to see them around the the head gate they're just laying there on the ground we want to we want to dispose of them correctly and in that way none of the fly populations have access to that that chemistry that's still on there but uh, uh, typically um you know, most people wean their calves, say, if they're spring calving herd, and that's when probably they're going to remove those tags possibly. So. Yeah. So maybe we could talk about timing. Trent, what do you, what do you see from producers kind of in this area as far as fly tag timing? I know we had a good conversation about that earlier. Well, yeah, it depends on when you're going to be calving your herd. So if you're thinking about a spring calving herd, you calved in February, those calves get a few months old and you think you want to start to run them through the shoot to do their first vaccinations and things, it can be tempting to go ahead and put those tags in at that point because you're starting to see tick populations increase and, and those tags can sometimes help with ear ticks and, and things of that nature. But, you know, personally, I like to wait a little bit longer here into May and June before I put that out there because you think about the timing of those tags and maybe you guys can talk about how long the efficacy is of an actual fly tag. 
Yeah, so Trent, uh, let's just take one of the products, for example, maybe an XP820, and it'll a lot of times say on the box, you know, it'll last five months. And and that's one of the things we were doing is, okay, when does when does it get way in above the threshold? And and uh, that particular product uh, was was really good in that first year. And and so each year we use those products, let's say we, we use XP820 for multiple years, we're going to get resistance. And so, again, that's why we need to rotate those chemistries. Um, and so knowing what's on the label, uh, one of the pyrethroid products, uh, I think it's, uh, Dana, you can help me out here on one of them that, you know, sometimes you need just one tag. Some of them you need mm -hmm. to put two tags in your ears. I think it's a py uh, Python Magnum. It says on the label, you can get away with just one. Yeah, that's a synergized pyrethroid. So it's kind of like a pyrethroid plus kind of a ex extra strong one. Yeah. And, and they do it. It. It has worked very well for me in my in my uh, collections, and and so uh, I do rotate between a pyrethroid to to an XP820 and then to an organophosphate. And the the key that Dr. Talley talks about is that organophosphate is one you've got to wear gloves on. Mm -hmm. uh, be careful, you know. It's definitely not one you want to put around a dog collar. You'll kill your dog that way. So always be careful of organophosphate type mm -hmm. products. Uh, but don't use those any more than once every third year. And so I try to do like a pyrethroid and XP820 and then, and then an organophosphate product. So. And that, that XP820 is actually a macrocylic lactone. So you've talked about all those other chemistries. The macrocylic lactone is that XP820 tag. And then the organophosphate, there's a variety of tags or, or products that can be, that are an organophosphate. Um, and then the pyrethroid or permethrin or that sort of thing. That's the other. So those are kind of the three chemistries we have. Um, and depending on what company that you drug company that you go to, they a lot of times have really cool charts that say, hey, if you're utilizing fly tags, this is the order you should go in. And so that's really helpful. And I found that to be helpful for producers. I don't know about you, Brian. Yeah. And, and I've I just, you know, think of my own herd of timing like Trent was talking about you know I'm going to work my calves at branding for example it'd be nice to put that fly tag I, I I'm with you 100% Trent we want to wait until maybe late May June and and I time my AI program uh, in late May and, and put that fly tag in then and so at, at the branding which I may have done 45 days earlier I'm going to put maybe a pour on on those cattle to maybe give them a little bit of relief because we know the porons don't last as long as the fly tags do. And mm -hmm. so anytime we use any product, we want to get the biggest bang for our buck. So I'm trying to deworm early uh, in that spring of the year in the green up. And then, uh, and then hopefully that gets me to that late May, first of June for the fly control part. And then I'll get you about, about three months, right? Brian in Oklahoma, we see about three months of control. Yeah. Fly tag, regardless of low label claims, like you mentioned earlier, some of those fly tags say they're five or six month lifespan. Yep, yep, exactly. And so, what do you do when when we we get late in the season? That's the uh, the the thing that uh, Doctor Tally probably uh, uh, you know wishes he had a, a, a silver bullet for. But uh, you know, we probably ought to remove those, bring those cattle back in, and remove those tags, and and maybe go with a duster or a, another pour on again to get us a little bit longer through the year because we're, we're really waiting for the dang last frost to, to finish him off. 
I'm sorry, you're talking about the effects of hornfly being increased temp body temperature of the animal and things like that. And you think about that poor cow out in 105 degree August heat, you want your fly tag program to be providing relief at that time. And you hate to see them chasing flies right now, but honestly, they can handle the pressure at this point a little bit better. But, you know, I, I listen to this. And again, as an economist, you're, we're handling cattle a bunch in this program. We're bringing them into the chute, putting fly tags in. We're trying to get them gathered up to spray them. What are some cultural practices I can do it? if I'm going to fail at any one of those kind of control methods, are there, are there other hands-off ways I can look into trying to reduce some of my horn fly numbers? Yeah, so you bring up an excellent point and I'll let Dana talk some more on this too, but our other options are think about things like an IGR and, and the one I've already talked about, you know, the walkthrough fly trap, it's an integrated pest management. It's, it's no chemistry at all. It's just knocking that fly off the animal and, and, and trying to reduce the population a little bit. So I'll let Dana throw her uh, comments in this area too. Yeah. So the IGR is the first thing that comes to my mind, not a perfect control, but you're not running cattle through the chute. It's in mineral, it's in lick tubs, can be kind of expensive. Um, a lot of producers have found success with it complementing a fly tag or complementing a pour on program. It just adds that extra level of control in August, July and August, you may not visually see the, um, the positive impact of that, but it is still working. It's just not as effective as maybe a, a you know, strong chemical. The other thing is people think, well, my neighbors don't use an IGR or my neighbors don't control their flies. So I don't, wouldn't get any benefit about controlling flies. And that's not necessarily true. I think proper stocking rates help you kind of control fly counts in some ways. Um, it depends on where you're at, right, Brian, it's wetter in your area. And sometimes, I mean, we can have more horn flies up here because they really like that dry heat, right? So they, they, they love moisture, I guess, okay. a temperature, yeah. uh, you know, they love heat, okay. that's for sure. But, you know, the drought of 11 and 12, our fly counts went down okay. considerably. So that, that's my relative term there. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody kind of remembers those drought years. So, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the IGRs, like you said, you know, timing of it, you know, when do we put it out through the state? And, and we're looking actually probably earlier than most people would think. So uh, in the, in the, Panhandle, we're probably looking first of April for me and, and definitely Southeast like Idabel, you know, they're first of March. So there can be a month's difference between, you know, just in the state of Oklahoma that you want to get that out and get it started before even now we've had a few late freezes that uh, have hopefully knocked back some populations, but we still need to get uh, get those IGRs out there, you know, working on the the, the pupil stage that goes into mm -hmm. the, in the manure pads. So, uh, yeah, it works right through the manure. It doesn't go into the animal at all. I mean, it goes into the animal, but it's in the manure. It prevents that, that fly egg um, from developing to a mature fly, you know, from the manure pad. So it works through the manure. It's kind of a cool system. I, I like to talk about it at producer meetings because they're like, oh, really? It works like that, huh? 
so so Trent, did you ever think about your calving season as well? Maybe, you know, spring calving, you know, we've talked a lot about that in fly control. What about those fall calvers? You know, at what months of the year are the calves growing? Uh, they're probably under less stress of flies. And so uh, that that to me is a cultural practice as well, picking a, picking a calving season. In, in, in Oklahoma, we sure can have both spring and fall calving herds. So, yeah, when you talk about West and and Northwest, we're so hamstrung by the wheat pasture resource that, that that drives our calving window for the most part. And so we get stuck at trying to grow calves through the summertime during the highest fly populations. But your guys is talking about uh, cultural practices makes me think about the life cycle that horn flies. So as you talked about, it lives its whole life on the cow. It doesn't go much more than a few feet away from her. And when they, that horn fly gets ready to lay its eggs, it flies from the back of the cow to a fresh manure pad. And I always think about what Dana said with stocking rates. You know, if you've got cattle closely confined where they're walking past their, well, their own feces <laughs> on an hourly basis, you know, you're going to give more opportunities for those hatching and, and growing pupa to, that turn into a fly to find a new host. Mm-hmm. And if you can somehow kind of spread out, if they don't have just one tree to find shade under during the summertime, if there's multiple places they can stay in the pasture, I think that that tends to help. I, I see the highest fly populations on my animals whenever I'm more confined. Yeah. So we see also, you know, you, if you have like really high density stocking rates with a high rotation, you'll see kind of a reduction and correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, you'll see a reduction in horn flies because they're walking through the manure pad and disrupting that, that perfect egg you know, sort of environment. So you'll see some disruption. So I tell producers if they get to where in the summer, they have lots of horn flies or stable flies, which are on the legs. We haven't talked about that, but, um, that they're supposed to kind of like move if they have a loafing area with lots of manure to like break up that, um, manure, spread it around with, um, I don't know what piece of equipment, Josh, I would do that with, but even a panel behind a four-wheeler or something, you know, spread all that out to kind of disrupt that egg environment and that, I mean, in, in high, high loafing areas, but yeah, the stocking rate is this, this situation. And that's, that's some of the uh, thoughts on rotational grazing. If you, if you were to move every three days, you're, you're, you're kind of breaking up that cycle as well. And, and so not very many people can afford to do, you know, everyday rotations, but three days is even Mm -hmm. pretty, pretty intensive, you know, but man, start somewhere. Maybe it's once a week, you know, you're going to help yourself. It's, it's we're none of these one, one single uh, tools in our toolbox is going to solve it all. But uh, you know, if you can keep adding to them, you're going to have better luck, you know, breeds, breeds of cattle you put, you select. Uh, we know uh, the British breeds uh, tend to have, you know, more of thicker hair coats. And that just seems like a, a great place to, to hang on for that fly. Whereas mm-hmm. a Brahmin has a tighter hide. Uh, we don't see as many flies on Brahma type cattle. Uh, Kianina has been found to to be a breed that uh, you know has some fly resistance. Uh, the Longhorn, you know, I guess you know they've survived for many many years, and so obviously there must be some selection there for that. And so uh, we tend to see fewer flies on on certain breeds than others, and so uh, you know that you know could be a part of your your overall plan. No, we've oh. been talking about cows, but what's the efficacy on ear tags and bulls? You want me to tackle that one, Dana? Yeah, go first? ahead, tackle it, Brian. So, go ahead. So, so 
you know, bulls and, and a fly tag, how does the fly tag actually work? And it's, if you think about it, it's, it's that animal being the, able to throw its head back, like it's irritated from that fly and it activates some of that chemical. And so it gets on the rest of its, its body a little bit there. And, and so a bull, when it gets to be, oh, at least 24 months of age, it has such a big uh, muscle development in its neck, it can't activate that tag anymore. So it's, it's basically useless to put a tag in a bull's ear. Now, a growing animal up to a certain point, you, you could probably, you know, do that. But uh, uh, right. bulls is usually one we just say, don't even bother with the fly tag. Yeah, let them deal. They got a deal. <laughs> and I, and I, I don't, I don't just say let them deal in a lot of ways. That's when I start go to my dusters and, and, and Agreed. Maybe go yes. out there with a, some kind of a spray can and, and every once in a while, give them some relief. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause they want testosterone flies are attracted to that hormone. And so they will have probably more flies naturally than a cow, um, because of that hormone. And so, yeah, I guess I won't be so cruel, Brian. And, 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 you know, <laughs> nursing a calf nursing a cow it, it gets that uh, that milk on the udder and so that that attracts the darn horn flies so uh, a dry cow versus a one that's nursing there's differences in the counts that we found and so uh, i've found age of the cow you know she can have low counts earlier in her life but once she gets about uh, uh 10 years of age they it's kind of like the old wilderbeest you know the, the line goes after the weakest link and it's usually usually after some of the older cows that don't have the immunity anymore so well, what about what about the uh uh tagging calves brian what's your opinion on that so i i, I rely on what dr tally tells me to do and and i've mainly just used uh, tags in the cows themselves they they, they usually nuzzle that calf enough times that they'll get a little chemical on the calf as well and so um you know i i've not put them in my my calves from from birth to weaning now after that period then yes uh, i might do that that's been a lot of good information we're coming close to the end of our time together today and from what i hear it's it's being proactive you know and and there's not an easy way around this there's cultural things like igrs and and trying to make sure your cattle have uh, your dusters and your kind of <laughs> some sprays on the back and then and then timing those fly tags uh, for a little bit later than now you know we're talking in that late may to june time frame to get the most efficacy and then being sure to remove those it's you know you see producers who don't do anything and you see producers that do everything and there's there's a lot of in between there where we can have some success in trying to reduce populations because you're never going to get rid of all of them but you know, economically, if we can reduce numbers, we'll, we'll see an impact to our bottom line that will be positive. So Brian, I really appreciate you joining us today. I'm sure we'll have you on again some other time in the future to, to talk some more about uh, livestock and, and the ways that we can make more money. But again, appreciate you being on here and we'll catch you next time. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. If you would like to hear more or follow up on the discussed topics, please reach out to your local county extension agent. OSU has a presence in all 77 counties with educators eager to assist you. Also, please consider checking the description for links to our social media pages and further information pertinent to the conversation. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon.